Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. And I'm speaking today with my good friend and longtime colleague, Trudy Goodman, PhD. So maybe I should call her Dr. Goodman, I guess, in these days. Trudy is a Vipassana teacher in the Theravada lineage and the founding teacher of Insight LA. She's also taught residential retreats at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California, Big Bear Retreat Center, and Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, among other places. Trudy is trained in two fields, meditation and psychotherapy. She had the privilege of studying developmental psychology with Jean Piaget, Lawrence Kohlberg, and Carol Gilgan. 
For 25 years in Cambridge, Mass., Trudy practiced mindfulness-based psychotherapy with children, teenagers, couples, and individuals. Trudy conducts retreats and workshops worldwide. She's a contributing author of Clinical Handbook of Mindfulness. She's also the voice of Trudy the Love Barbarian on the Midnight Gospel on Netflix. Welcome to the podcast, Trudy. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much. So that's a big spread between Dr. Goodman and Trudy the Love Barbarian. (laughs) Well, I can't call myself Dr. Goodman, even with the PhD, just because my dad was actually a doctor. (laughs) It was just not the same thing. I would probably at this point tend more toward the Love Barbarian identity. (laughs) That's really funny. Is that Duncan Trussell's? uh... Yes, it's Duncan Trussell's podcast. And um, for anybody who's curious, Trudy the Love Barbarian appears in episode number four, talking about forgiveness while she, you know, lops people's heads off and stuff like that. It's good. We can talk about forgiveness then, (laughs) minus the lopping. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty fun. Okay, great. So, um, Tell me about how you came to practice meditation, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually practiced meditation before I became a psychotherapist. So that was my first love. And, And actually, it was through learning to sit with my own mind that seemed so crazy and impossible um, that I got interested in psychotherapy. I mean, I got interested in meditation really from early experiences that I had had as a young adult. Um, And the two most powerful ones were really associated with becoming a mother um, during, while I was in labor, during childbirth. And then at one point when my daughter, uh, my daughter got very ill and was actually dying in the hospital when she was two, she didn't die. She's fine. I've got grandkids thanks to her, but I went through some really traumatic experiences early on as a mom, and and I was a single mom too, very early on. And by the time I was 24, I was a divorced single mom. And I was really bewildered. I felt like I had done everything right. I'd been a good girl in school. I went to school. I actually graduated from college. You know, I did the things you were supposed to do in my family. And still my life was definitely not working out. And that kind of bewilderment, that sense of like, what's wrong? There must be more to life. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I married a nice Jewish boy. I had a baby and here I am, um, kind of like Cinderella after the clock strikes midnight. And, um, And that was really what made me want to find out more than I knew at the time. And I went to study with Jean Piaget, Sharon, and with those developmental psychologists because I thought they knew about the mind and how we know things. And, you know, he talked about the birth of intelligence and how, and perception. And I I was so interested in consciousness and how we perceive our life. And I wasn't very much of a happy camper, really, mm-hmm. like many people when they come to meditation. Um, so I had those experiences that were mysterious openings and I didn't understand them. 
like many people in our generation, I had also experimented with um, psychedelics and had experiences through that. And the whole, the whole result of that was just my sensing that there must be a way to experience this life that makes more sense than the way I'm currently feeling. Mm-hmm. And um, when I met my first teacher was the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanim. Um, and when I met him, you know, he could barely speak English at the time, but I could just see in his eyes, he knows what I want to know. And I had never seen that before. And that's when I began to really seriously practice meditation. Well, thank you for for that. You know, I think it's interesting because you have had close relationships with teachers, as I have, and uh, for many people in our time, that's not the case. And uh, in in so many ways, this for some, the psychotherapeutic relationship has come to mean that even if someone has a meditation practice, you know, for that sort of relational quality, that sense of being seen. Uh, a lot of people do rely on on a psychotherapist these days. Yes, and I think that psychotherapy, which I I began psychotherapy, I think when I like broke up with a really nice boyfriend because I was too depressed and couldn't figure out how to <laughs> how to make a relationship work, and I started therapy, mm. and the incredible really it was a coincidence because at that time I don't know it was maybe 1972 something like that I can't remember the exact time but it was really early 70s but this therapist was a meditator and that was um just I think very fortunate uh we would say I don't know fortunate karma but because I discovered that the synergy between Therapy and meditation was really powerful. Like I would sit and meditate and go to retreat when I had childcare and time off work. And the things that would come up in my sitting that were not really things to explore in the context of meditation, I could take to therapy Mm -hmm. and talk over and sort out in that way and then come back to the sitting and ready to just discover new dimensions of that. And I also feel, so I, I feel like, uh, I feel grateful to both paths, really. Therapy helped me feel sane enough to do intensive meditation mm-hmm. practice and was a support for, I think, about four years, really. I was in a long therapy. And to speak to your point about, you know, most people not having a close relationship with teachers the way we did, part of why we did is that there was no there was nothing on the internet. I don't even remember if there was an internet by then. And there was no, there was not this abundance of books and classes and resources of all kinds that exist today. So I, I think it's, it's just really an interesting question of, I don't think people should despair because they can't have a close relationship with a teacher because teachers are available and accessible in a way they were not for us. You had to go all the way to India. I did. (laughs) I'm grateful to the Asian teachers and to you and Joseph and Jack, you know, the young Westerners. Um, 
who came here to teach us. And of course, I don't want to overlook the fact that there was Buddhist, there were Buddhist churches and congregations um, here long before all of us began to meditate. But there was something about the meditation teachers who came and uh, and you all being young Westerners that were, it, it just made it, it made it, just made it more relatable and accessible because the practice is hard sometimes. It involves being alone with ourselves. It involves facing all these dimensions of our psyche that we may not welcome. It involves, um, you know, we really need support to do it. And whether it's the support of a teacher, the support of a community, the support of a few friends, I don't think we're meant to go this path alone. Yeah, well, I certainly don't think people should despair because uh, people's practice and appreciation of liberating teachings and and deep, deep, wonderful values are is very alive. You know, it's not just yes. something that that's wrote. I, I think it's it's really amazing. It's it's just different. And and also speaking to that same point, you know, I did go to India when I was eighteen years old and. I was a New Yorker and was going to college in Buffalo. I'd never even been to California before, but I kind of had to do that. In terms of what I was looking for, I just didn't see it here, uh, you know, which was a very practical set of methods that would help me feel not so fragmented and, and happier. And uh, I just didn't see it. It's not to say it was not here, but it was not something I could find. And so I went to India and... and People don't have to do that anymore. I know. Um, how, how, what year did you go, Sharon? Do you remember? I went in 1970. Was? In fact, in 1970, I okay. started meditating January 7th, 1971, which is just around the corner. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, think of that. Um, it's like a that, big anniversary. It is a big anniversary. Yeah. So talking to you is part of my celebration. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think also people are, um, you know, it, it's a mystery. Like you don't have to be in such a tremendous degree of suffering as many of us were, uh, because the teachings, the tools are much more available than they were. Um, so you didn't have to be like that highly motivated. Sometimes people come to practice. I see out of just a great curiosity about life. You know, they want to. They want to live in a deeper way, but it's not quite that same compelled feeling of like, I've got to get it together somehow. Um, and maybe they don't have to be that compelled. I mean, I think it's a different world with a lot more understanding of the mind and a lot more kind of cherishing of practices, um, you know, where uh, many of us grew up in a faith tradition, for example, where the idea of our own liberation was not that important, you know, if uh, there were certain rituals or celebrations or, or references back to the great ones of old from another era who were models for how we might live today. But uh, I think about one of my teachers, this man named Manindra in India, who at one point said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. 
And it was like such a startling moment because it was also maybe the first time in my life that somebody was looking at me as though to say, you know, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the kind of angst that had brought you here to India to begin with. And and that's kind of the whole point. It's, it sounds selfish in a way or self-centered, but moving to that immediacy of like, what does this mean for me, you know, with my physical pain, with my heartache, with my joy, you know, what does it mean in, in real time for me? That's the whole point. Yeah. And I think that when you talk about that, instead of feeling selfish or self-centered, to me, it feels like connected learning, which is something that um, that some feminist scholars were really talking about in the last century, in the sense that, you know, making it personal, making it be about your awakening and your capacity or my capacity to cope with my life and grow and learn and so forth, um, making it personal in that way brings the teachings alive because we know you can read books and study teachings and intellectually understand them. But my that first teacher that I mentioned, the Korean Zen master, Desan Sanim, he used to always say to us, understanding will not help you. And he was just trying to point to, it has to be personal. It has to be embodied. You have to get this just intellectually understanding, conceptual understanding is helpful for sure, but it isn't going to help you in the crunch. And I remember one night I had a dream that I was extremely old. I woke up in the dream one day and was as old as my mother, who must have been about 52 at the time. Of course, now that seems like, you know, being a baby, but um, at the time that seemed so old. And I remember looking in the mirror and being terrified, like, how did I get this old, this fast? And oh my gosh. And his voice echoed in my head, understanding will not help you. And I realized he's right, you know, for, for, to face our mortality, to face the losses that many of us have sustained during this pandemic, for example, to face all of this, um, it's, it's not enough to be able to know intellectually that there are solutions to one's problem. We have to actually find them and make them work in our life. Just like Manindra was saying to you, but Manindra, it sounds like gave you the confidence that you mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very much so. And, and you know, these days, I I honestly just reflect a lot, like how could one get through a time like this without these tools? I mean, it just feels so incredibly grateful. And of course, I encounter people, um, whether it's reading the chat on a Zoom or um, whatever, you know, and, and uh, hearing about the situations that people are are going through and it's it's so tough and I think about um, the study that was done some time ago at University of Virginia on uh, they put people in a room and just they didn't have any books or they didn't have their phones or anything like that and they said just like be with yourself be with your thoughts and it was like absolutely awful for people a lot of the time and there was some rather larger percentage of men than women, but some percentage of people who chose to self-administer an electric shock rather than just sit there doing nothing. 
And, oh, no. and I think, oh, God, you know, like, here we are. So much has been taken away in terms of normal distraction. And it would be very tough to uh, not have these tools or be interested in these tools and, and just be sitting there with yourself. It's quite hard. Oh, I know. I know. Just to be sitting there with yourself and your own spinning mind spinning into, you know, lots of doomsday scenarios um, because it's a scary time. And I look back over history and I think, oh, humans have always felt their time was a scary time. But this really is a scary time mm -hmm. um, in lots of ways. And I, you were talking earlier about you don't have to necessarily feel compelled to do the practices. You can just be curious. But I think one of the things that has happened during the pandemic is that more people are feeling compelled mm -hmm. to find a way that to, to bear the experience that they're having that doesn't involve resorting to drinking or, you know, mm -hmm. um, using substances of various kinds to take the edge off experience. I mean, if you're an introvert to begin with, and I have heard this from people, many people who are, for them, the pandemic is kind of a relief, like they're relieved from social pressures. And um, I know some teenagers who, who it's dragging on too long now, but mm -hmm. during the first months of the pandemic, they felt relieved to be in Zoom school and not suffering from FOMO, uh, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, you know, I found this quote from somebody that I really loved because it just offered a different view. Um, it's, it, I found it in the sun in the writers, the readers write section. And this is a woman named Diane Dinerman. And she says, I've spent my life trying to find a balance between being alone and being with others. I always thought there was something wrong with me, that my desire for solitude was a defect and I needed an extra push to live life fully. But now I see that distance from others means closeness with myself. When the shelter in place order came, I felt my body sink into itself in relief. My shoulders moved down from my ears. I've never spent so much time alone and I've never felt less lonely. Mm. Um, and and she says, I still connect deeply with people just one at a time with lots of space in between. And that's a beautiful message. But then I also am hearing from people who are so deeply lonely and really are not introverts and are not able to socialize and make connections in the way that keeps them feeling healthy and sane. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so important to make connections, even in the smallest way, even listening to a podcast like this, um, being part of a group, whether it's a sangha or a satsang or a church or a temple or, you know, any kind of group that, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a spiritual <laughs> or practice group. Um, but any time that people can connect to one another and mean something to each other. Because I think when you don't feel like you life has meaning to anybody else, that's a different kind of loneliness that's super painful. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to just make sure that we talked a little bit about this and ways for people to make connections. Um, because in our, we are often 
feeling ashamed of our loneliness. Like it's not something you post on your Instagram. It's certainly not something that you brag about Mm -hmm. Uh, because in our culture, we're supposed to be so independent, but the reality is we're not, we're interdependent. (laughs) We really need each other and we're embedded in each other's lives, whether we realize it or not. One of the blessings of meditation practice and being mindful and present and doing the loving kindness practices that you teach so beautifully, Sharon, is that it really helps us feel that connection, not just to ourselves, but that through connecting with our own hearts, um, we are able to be alone without feeling lonely. In other words, to have some appreciation for the solitude and still feel connected. Do you experience it that way? I do. I mean, of course, there. Are, we should say there are many people who are not sheltering in place. You know, they're working, and and uh, there's a whole other kind of you know pressure and oppressiveness and scariness and Absolutely. things like that that people are facing. You know, for the people who are yeah. more isolated, you know, it's it's a big ordeal for a lot of people, and. Uh, you know, I just heard from a friend who heard from someone in a nursing home who said, I haven't had a visitor in eight months or, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's just like, it's so sad. And, and I know that from my own experience that the process of meditation or doing something like loving kindness meditation is profoundly connecting to yes. others. And I always thought it was kind of weird because it's like, it looks like the most solitary experience imaginable. You may be all alone, your eyes may be closed, but somehow in the process, there's this deep knowing that our lives really are intertwined. And and uh, at the same time, you know, there's that, which I think is, is really important. And then there are ways in which I think people, if possible, can really benefit from reaching out. Like I have a friend who's, uh, physically kind of vulnerable. And so she's really been alone since the beginning, you know, and yeah. you just moved to a new city and into this building. And so she joined the knitting club and the That's book great. club, which actually gave me the idea that when my book Real Change came out, I thought book club, I should try to form book clubs, which I did, you know, we did. And, and, uh, I th- now that I'm remembering she's in the knitting club, I'm wondering if I'm going to get like a scarf or something for, you know, all her efforts. It's gone on long <laughs> enough. She could make a lot of scarves. Um, yeah. You know, and I thought, how brave of you, you know? It's like uh, just to connect with people in a particular way, you know, not looking for somebody who has to be your best friend and all all avenues of life and in a way it's also reflective of something I wanted to talk to you about because I was I was talking to somebody um in the field of addiction and uh he was from Canada and and he was saying that there were some tremendous number of people dying of overdoses even though it's Canada right so services were actually good and available um, in this particular region, I don't know about everywhere, but uh, the place he was talking about, he made a point of saying that, but it's more people 
not availing themselves of them, not reaching out, maybe feeling humiliated. I don't know what it is exactly, but that inability to acknowledge I need help um, is also a very prevalent part of our conditioning. And that also brings me to thinking about Ramdas, who I know you were very close to and, and how much toward the end of his life, post-stroke, living in a wheelchair and so on, um, that became a, a very powerful part of his, of his liberation, actually, is being able to ask for help. Yeah, I mean, he had no choice, right? He, you know, he, he, because of his stroke, he literally had no choice. He had to ask for help. And he, he was very open about how being that vulnerable and asking for help was one of the hardest things he had to go through. And I think it comes back to, again, you know, that we're just socialized. We're supposed to be independent and not need help. And, um, you know, recently we had uh, the NBA champion from 2010, from 10 years ago, Meta World Peace. Yes, I've always wanted to meet him for obvious reasons. (laughs) For those who don't know, Meta, M-E-T-T-A, is the Pali word. Pali being the language of the original Buddhist text for loving kindness. So I've always wanted to meet him once he changed his name. Yeah. And he, you know, he, he was somebody who, who went from um, being, he, he just could not harness the energies that he was experiencing from his traumatic childhood and all the pressure. And he, he became, I think the most, um, <laughs> the player who had made the most mistakes and most fouls and longest suspension and, you know, all of these records that you don't want to hold in the NBA. And he went from that kind of failure, a very public failure to, um, to being able to succeed and get back in the game literally. And I'm a great fan of his work off the court because he thanked his therapist when he got his championship ring. And that was just an unheard of thing, especially for a man in the African-American community that he was from, to acknowledge that vulnerability, to acknowledge that he had sought help. And he's really been working um, ever since for just mental health awareness, trying to take away the stigma of either addiction or men, you know, various mental health problems, depression, um, and that that cause us to ask for help, that we need to ask for help. And all of these things, addiction, depression, um, domestic violence, child abuse, excuse me, all of these things are exacerbated by loneliness, by that loss of connection or the loss of hope. Or even, you know, when you are having to go to work, when you're living in conditions where you can't quarantine, you're crowded together, you know, the, the fear that comes up in that situation and the confusion of not even knowing how to protect yourself and how to be safe, um, all of these stressors contribute to addiction, to depression, to just the mental health issues that we're talking about now. Um, and so to feel like it's okay, it's normal to suffer when you have such high levels of stress whether it's because you're having to go out and work in scary conditions and 
Certainly our country has not been a leader in helping people know how to keep themselves safe and get the resources they need. So that is harder too. But um, to be able to say this is, um, it's normal to suffer in this situation even the shame or the paralysis about getting help, all of this is perfectly normal. And people, traumatized people are reaching out to us as, as meditation teachers all the time. You must find this too, Sharon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's true for me and for Jack. Um, because just talking to somebody, it doesn't even have to be a therapist. It can be a friend. It can be a stranger. It can be whoever you find to talk to because being heard, being deeply listened to is healing. It helps you regulate your system. It just helps. Um, it just helps. So I actually, um, I just wanted to mention because it's, you know, becomes, it's sort of one of these unmentionables. All of these mental health issues become unmentionable in so-called polite society. But you and I were um, together at I think we, I don't know if we were teaching together. I can't remember when that question came in the chat. About, oh, yeah. yeah, we were teaching together for the, yeah. Um, yeah. for Jason's project. A friend, right. Jason, uh, I should also say, created a project, um, Love for, numeral for, Love for Live. It was originally for people in the live music industry and later expanded because so many people have lost work in, in various artistic fields and the supportive teams that that help artists uh, present their work. And so it was, um, it, it is still a website that exists and uh, with various interviews Jason did with different people. It was Thomas, who's a, a friend and associate of, of Trudy's um, leading beginning meditation classes. And then Trudy and Thomas and I taught a weekend together all of which is available for free on this website. So yes, it was during that, that yes. time that Trudy and I were actually having a dialogue with one another and this, this comment came in on the chat. Yes, and thank you for that shout out for Jason's work because it, it was such a generous offering and it is free and you can find it on the Love for Life website. But when this question came in about domestic violence on the chat, it really highlighted this is something that is happening and it's it happens under ordinary circumstances way too often. I don't have the statistics, but you can Google them and, and find out, you know, one in six women have experienced intimate partner violence. One in 10 men have experienced intimate partner violence. These are not small, (laughs) these are not small numbers. And, um, you know, if you're living with this, if this is part of your life experience during the pandemic, I just want to encourage you to reach out for support. And there are, um, there are websites that tell you how to reach out for support safely and including how to get out of the website instantly. If somebody comes into the room, how to erase it from your browser. They have tips for reaching out for support. If your phone has been taken away, 
and you don't have access to one, um, what to do when a survivor asks you for help, um, or when a loved one is in an abusive relationship, and how to plan safely uh, with friends and family. And I'm going to send you some great resources that I found, Sharon, that you can post. Um, mm -hmm. Great. A wonderful hotline with very detailed um, and specific help ideas. Um, and then one called Futures Without Violence. Uh, and then from the Mental Health Administration, there's a lot of, um, there's an administration, which I never even knew about before, uh, since I haven't been practicing therapy for a long time. Uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration has lots of resources for safety and support during COVID. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna send you, you know, ways to support children, um, ways for different communities, Spanish speaking, Indigenous, all trans, you know, all different kinds of communities who might need support, workplaces, employers. Um, I'm just going to, I'll send you all the information about these uh, hotlines and support resources because, because this is a reality too. And it's one that people really are not comfortable uh, speaking about. And it's often not safe. I mean, I, I think those resources will be great and we can post them all. Yeah. Um, in various yeah. places, actually. I think that would be really great. And I think we're also, I just think it's important that you want to talk about these things too, Sharon, because I noticed um, in my sitting group, my meditation group that meets on Sunday mornings at Insight LA, I began a kind of series of teachings where I did bring in these mental health issues, um, including, you know, suicide or thinking about suicide. And, and it was, it was really um, kind of astonishing to me how many people stepped forward to mm -hmm. share their stories and how much support they got, even just from people typing into the chat. Uh, I love you. I care about you. You're brave, you know, just wonderful. Mm -hmm. support. Um, and so I just, I'm glad that you wanted to talk about it because it's hard to talk about. Well, it is. It's so it's so prevalent. Like I can remember actually that woman when you and I were teaching together, she didn't put it in the chat. She put it in the Q&A box. And I'm not sure to this day if anyone other than um, panelists can see what goes in the Q&A box. I don't know if other participants can, but um, it was there and I was reading it, you were reading it and Jason was sort of moderating it and I kept looking at it and she'd signed it, which was very brave. And there is an option on the Q and A box uh, to on zoom to give a written answer rather than bring it up in public. Yes. And, and I think that's what Jason assumed was going to happen that one of us, and I certainly, preferred, you know, you with your vast and, and very impressive, actually, psychotherapeutic background. I remember you as a therapist in Cambridge and how uh, much people loved you and working with you and how important it was. But anyway, so I, I kept thinking, I, I wonder if, if Trudy's going to write to her and answer that. And Jason apparently thought that too, because he went on to 
another question and you said out loud, I, I want to actually respond to something that came in. And it was like so important. It was such an important moment, both for her, I would imagine, and also just for everybody to to know like this is happening. Yes. And you know, we read the statistics and it's happening at such a an increased way. But um these are people, these are us, it's not statistics. And and for somebody, I remember you saying over and over again, get help, talk to somebody. You deserve to be treated well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You deserve to be treated with respect. That's the bottom line. And and I think that by naming it publicly every time we can, it just every time we can do anything that reduces the stigma that is so old fashioned and outdated uh, attached to seeking help, wanting help, needing help, having um, mental health issues, whether it's suicidal ideation, which means thinking about suicide. You haven't got a plan, you're not going to do it, but you're thinking about it. And, um, or, you know, living in an abusive relationship or just working with depression. I mean, there's different kinds of depression and it's not always recognized, Sharon. There's obviously there, most of the depression that people are experiencing in the pandemic today is what we would call situational. And it's not, it didn't just come out of nowhere. There's a reason for it. And, but people often don't understand that, you know, anxiety can be a sign of depression, irritability and anger. You know, if people think of depression as melancholy, hopeless, helpless, despair, sad, sad, sad. And yes, depression often presents that way, but can also present through um, chronic anger and irritability or chronic anxiety. And I just mentioned these things because, um, because there's help. It's a treatable illness. It can, in most cases, really be treated well. And, ah, oh, la, la, you can get your life back on track, you know. And today we also know that mindfulness and meditation can help find a way through depression, through the work of Zindel Segal and the other authors of the book, The Mindful Way Through Depression, which is really about relapse prevention because depression can be recurrent. Um, you can get well, but you have to also stay well. And I think understanding that, um, you know, mindfulness and meditation, while they are not cure-alls, they can really help us have more space, more room, more sense of our own agency and resources and the confidence that Menindra gave you, the confidence that, yes, these mind states are workable and with support and with knowledge, you know, learning how, um, I can work with them. I can work with them. Whether with a sponsor, a therapist, a friend, as I was mentioning before, I can work with it if I have support and connection and some, you know, skillful support. And I want to go back to Meta World Peace for a moment because, yeah, um, because I, I sort of remember um, some really violent altercations. So perpetrators are also suffering under uh, mental health issues, you know, and 
I remember when I first heard his name, he, he went through some name change, legal name change. And, and I was so excited because I'd always had difficulty translating meta. Um, loving kindness is the classical, almost standard translation. And some people have said to me, uh, like scholars have said to me, you know, just say love. Why are you being so cutesy? Just say love. Nobody knows what loving kindness means. And um, there were all kinds of issues around the translation. And then there he was. I thought, oh, now everyone's going to use meta. How wonderful. I'm not going to have to translate it at all. Uh, <laughs> and then he got into these fights and he did all kinds of things. And so people, friends were sending me these headlines, real headlines, like Meta's let, let, let us down. Meta failed us, you know. Aww. You know, and so it's a lot to to kind of lose it in those ways and uh, to come back and, and say, yeah, I needed help, you know. I too yeah. need help. Yeah, and I think, you know, that feeling of, oh, he's let us down because he lost it. You know, we have to understand it's a process. It's a journey. We don't just take a name in loving kindness and, and plant that aspiration in our hearts and turn into the goddess of love. It doesn't happen that way. It takes what we call practice, right? Yeah. And um, I, I want to read something that I actually transcribed from um, a video that I saw that, that Meta made with We Rise in May of this year. And he said, when I was a younger kid, emotions would get the best of me and I didn't have the tools to understand how to deal with the emotions. And he said, when a controversy, I love that he says controversy, he was in fistfights. When a controversy is about to happen, how do you take five to make a good decision? On the basketball court, if you let your emotions get the best of you, you're not going to be focused at the on the task at hand. I started to really take on meditation, therapy, yoga, other approaches, and all these tools were essential for me being able to finally have a successful MBA career. But the part that I really loved is he took the name Metta, he said, which his name was inspired by Buddhism, and he said he looked at thousands of names before choosing this one with Phil Jackson, and he said... Um, I wanted to reach back and be part of something that I was as a child in the purest form. Metta was something I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to accomplish it the way I had goals for on the court. And, and then he went on and he was just saying, you know, I, I still meditate. I still get anxious. I still talk with my therapist to this day when I need to. But metta is a place for me to go when I feel my emotions are getting the best of me. Um, and I think what I, really, what I really loved about this is that he was able to take some of the, um, what would I call it, like the drive that he had to be good at what he did on the basketball court. And he was able to take some of that, uh, I guess it's a kind of ambition, really, aspiration we would be more comfortable using that word in relation to practice, but to take that aspiration into, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to practice this. And, you know, everybody has been practicing something. We've all been practicing things all day long. 
but are we just practicing opening the fridge? Are we just practicing picking up our device? You know, what are we practicing all day long? But the point I wanted to make is we are practicing something. And so it's not that huge of a shift to then turn to let me practice something deliberately, intentionally, <laughs> you know, let me practice something that is going to actually bring more joy into my life and free my heart uh, since I'm practicing stuff all day long. That's great. It's like, what do we have faith in? We have faith in something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the thing we, I'm, I'm inspired, you're inspired. I think we're all inspired by people who have taken their really adverse experiences of loss and failure and, and transformed them, made something um, more compassionate and have, well, like my first teacher used to say to us, he, he had, he'd say, only keep try mind, fall down a hundred times, get up 101 times. And I love that because you do fall down a hundred times. You fall down a thousand times. You're very good at that when you're teaching meditation, mm -hmm. Sharon, mm -hmm. at just, you know, helping people with that. Um, but the person who was also part of that event with Meta World Peace was my friend, Lily Dulan, who wrote a book called Giving Grief Meaning. She lost a baby and was so deeply grieving and mourning, and then it turned into depression, but she found a way through. And these are the stories that I think we need to hear right now. She found her way through with the support of therapy, meditation, um, loving connection with friends. You know, she didn't do it all by herself, just like Ramdas couldn't do it all by himself in that wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so here we are. How lucky, you know, to have a sense of a path or paths, you know, like that. It's always so personal. The tools, the um, values, the things we bring together are kind of uniquely our own, but it's a path. And, exactly. And that's what we need, I think, more than anything is, is to understand that, that there's a path and that it's step by step and we fall down and, and we have to start again, again and again. Uh, but we're actually not destined to be stuck, you know, in some really difficult place. Right. Which doesn't mean, you know, like, cheer up, like, you know, you can do better. It's not like that. And, and sometimes it's taken that way, you know, that, uh, like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, it's really, that's not, exactly, you know? that's exactly the expression I was going to use. I would say yeah. it's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps because that's just more of the same, you know, you're on your own and you're, you should be independent and do it yourself. And yeah. Yeah. yeah things can be very, very hard. And, uh, we have to acknowledge that as well. And so part of what gets us through is compassion for ourselves and kind of forgiving ourselves for, for what we're going through. And then having just the natural outflow of that is compassion for others, which is, is that very powerful sense of connection. Yeah. And compassion for others, you know, it's not pity. That's the thing we learn too. Compassion for others means caring and then being willing to shoulder some responsibility for what we care about, you know, which is another way 
to, I think, help ourselves when we're feeling down. It's not a way that we often think of, but it's something that I really learned in the 12-step programs, which is to do something, volunteer, even if you just, in, in that setting, even if you just set up the chairs in a room, um, you know, just do something that uh, takes responsibility for being of service to others in some way, because we're wired to, uh, we're wired to find um, fulfillment and pleasure in supporting each other, actually. And one of the stories I'll always remember is bringing a friend who was really having a hard time and pretty depressed to visit this visiting um, Tibetan Buddhist Lama, very renowned Lama. And I had the chance to have a meeting with this Lama and I decided to bring her and let her talk to him. And she poured out her story. And at the end, he looked at her and he said, do something good for somebody. Mm. And it was so simple and it was so doable we can always find some little tiny thing good that we can do for somebody, even if it's just reaching out, um, sending them a picture or a joke or, you know, a note. So that's another thing that, um, yeah, I'm just echoing what you're saying about compassion, but it's a very embodied and practical compassion mm -hmm. that we teach. That's so great. Well, thank you so much, Trudy, for for joining me, joining us in this really uh, disrupted, crazy world. And uh, yeah. onward, I wonder if um, you could lead us in a practice to to close our time together. I would love to do that, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to do that. So I would like to um, just offer a very simple practice, which it's a form of loving kindness practice, but it's really not, we're not needing to use phrases or do any kind of anything really, except maybe uh, understand that even turning up the corners of our mouths has an effect on our central nervous system, a positive effect. So I'm going to lead us in a brief practice, which is a kind of loving kindness practice because it's nurturing the possibility of ease and um, happiness in our moment-to-moment -moment existence. I'm going to begin by just ringing the bell just very gently So sitting comfortably, taking a deep breath in and out, releasing, <sighs> just breathing in the aliveness of this moment and breathing out any tension, completely relaxing. And one more time. One of the 
amazing things we can do in meditation is direct our attention wherever we want. So bringing attention to your head. Just imagining your head, your whole head relaxing. And then bringing a little half smile, just turning up the corners of the mouth. You don't have to feel like smiling. Just bringing that little bit of a smile to your lips. As you breathe and relax. And then bringing attention to the eyes. Imagine that you're smiling with your eyes. You know how we have to crinkle our eyes to show a smile while we're wearing masks outside or inside. And letting the corners, the outer corners of the eyes just spread and widen toward the temples as the eyes gently smile. Letting the ears soften and relax. And the ears get involved in the smile too. Letting your jaw relax. The brow smooth out. The shoulders relax. Just allowing this gentle smile to spread, not just through the head, but down through the whole body. Just feeling a subtle shift and relaxing of the hands, the arms, the legs, the feet, the whole body. And offering again this gentle smile to all the cells in the body. Appreciating the aliveness. the harmonious functioning of breath and body and mind and heart. The whole organism
present, relaxing any tension completely. Just soaking in the okayness of this particular moment in your life. Staying in the moment, moment by moment. And when the attention wanders away into a past moment or thoughts about future moments, just gently coming back to that smile where the corners of the mouth are just turned up ever so slightly. where the eyes are smiling as they widen toward the sides of the head, relaxing. And to paraphrase a Zen poet, as we sit together here, we know deeply that even though it all goes wrong, I stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my lips but hallelujah. We may not be feeling a hallelujah in this moment, but we are sitting here and maybe everything is going wrong, but we can sit here with nothing on our lips but a gentle smile, appreciating the gift that is our life. Well, thank you everybody for the opportunity to practice together for 
few minutes and thank you, Sharon, for the chance to have this conversation. I just love connecting with you whenever we do. Thank you so much. I love connecting with you as well. I'm going to go to Netflix and I'm going to watch you as a barbarian <laughs> lady. Episode four, you said. Episode four. Yeah. Really, thank you so much for joining me today and for a lifetime of work. And to learn more about Trudy's work and her many offerings, you can visit her website at Trudy Goodman. It's T-R-U-D-Y-G-O-O-D-M-A-N.com. And you can also check out Insight LA, which is Insight, dot org. A big thank you to all the people listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.